Hello and welcome to Neurospicy. I'm your host, Dr. Karen McLennan, a research psychologist specialising in neurodiversity. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with fantastic guests about their life and experiences of being neurodivergent or their work in the realm of neurodiversity. So joining me today is Lydia Wilkins, who I'm really looking forward to get to know. Um, Hello, Lydia. Welcome and thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I am too. It's yeah, going to be an interesting conversation, I think. And yeah, it'd be lovely to get to know you a bit more. Um, so before we launch into any conversation, could you please just start by introducing yourself and your link to neurodiversity? I always feel like I never quite know what to say when people ask me this question. Um, so uh, in my day job, I'm a freelance journalist. I now, at the time of this podcast, I've just also started to edit Disability Review magazine, which is the largest disability-related title in the UK. Um, we'll be talking about cover stars and that kind of thing in due course. I kind of cover, I always say, social inequality issues in disability because it's either a disability story or it can be something like... Um, For an example, I used to write for the Brighton Seagull and last year I was covering where there were endangered dolphins that were washing up in Brighton, in Sussex, where I live on the sea. Um, Nobody knows there's dolphins there, but we actually have quite a few pods um, Mm. of them that come and visit. I am an ambassador for Accessable, the largest provider of disability information in the UK. I also edit their in-house newsletters. I'm the author of the Autism Friendly Cookbook, which is the link to neurodiversity. (laughs) I have had a diagnosis of ASD since I was two months shy of 16. I'm nearly 25 now. The cookbook began in lockdown basically because I got a little bit cross at the Department for Work and Pensions. We'll come on to that later on, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I am also a long COVID patient and I've also recently been told by a medical professional who's looked after me for a decade that I'm most probably likely dyspraxic and didn't you know that? No one told me. <laughs> oh, wow. Lots of new information there. <laughs> That's wonderful. You wear so many different hats then, um, kind of in your work life and also, yeah, lots of different things to talk about um, more in, in your personal life as well. So um, It's the thing of being freelance, having to do the different roles. It's um, Emma Gannon had such a brilliant phrase of the multi-hyphen method, but I think that's become sort of for careers generally. If you're freelance, you have to do several different things. Because you can't just say, oh, I'm going to write for a newspaper. It has to be kind of multifaceted just to make bank. That's the sad way, unfortunately, now. Yeah, I guess, I mean, in some ways, positives. Because if you like diversity of like what you do in your day to day. But yeah, I can see how that could be also challenging because it's constantly trying to manage lots of different things uh, but I mean we can talk more about mm. all of that as well because um, I'd really like to kind of kick off the conversation asking you more about your career in in journalism and um, I mean obviously you have different hats as part of that as well um, so yeah could you I mean maybe just start by talking about like how you got into it and also tell us a lot more about the different work you do. 
I always feel a bit of a fake when people ask me this question. Um, simply because there's always people who were like, oh, I wanted to be a writer or I always wanted to be a journalist. For me, it was not like this at all. Um, sort of, if I look back retrospectively, I think that there was probably a display of hyperlexia, I think that's what it's called. Um, in that, as a child, I was sort of, I remember kind of collecting words and sort of, like the 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 phrase precocious brat comes to mind because it was always things that was too far in advance, so not mm. very age appropriate and kind of like you know trying out sort of ideas and that kind of thing. Um, I do not possess a particularly great theory of mind, so I cannot write fictionally. I cannot write stories that you know start with once upon a time. Mm-hmm. So. It was the thing where eventually it kind of married itself. So liking to write and then this idea of how do you do that? Because journalistically, what you're doing when you're fighting copy is basically a load of facts. It's factual stuff. It is, you know, actually real rather than going, oh, I've got this novel type thing. Um, Mm. It also was contributed partly to the fact that Unless you answer my, if I, I'm going to put it like this, unless my Mm. questions are answered to a high enough standard to satisfy my brain, I'm going to keep asking questions. Mm. So that started when I was in the third or fourth year in primary school, I think this was, and a teacher of mine, she was absolutely extraordinary and a wonderful woman. She was telling us about the diary of Anne Frank. And this was maybe twenty minutes. It wasn't. In, it wasn't enough to satisfy all these different questions I had about kind of like you know more than just oh she was this infamous person. I wanted to know more, and I wanted to read the book. That's how it kind of began. Um. So I went into. Obviously, I went on to do my A-levels and that thing. I was part of the generation where the AS stopped being a thing, like the transitional year. Mm-hmm. And it was the, But it was the thing of where I was diagnosed two months shy of turning 16, but it had been a kind of a three-and-a-half-year process of just this sort of mess that sort of was the tail end of. Um, mm-hmm. And the thing about this is, so my... The diagnosis was originally Asperger's syndrome. That's what's on my diagnostic paperwork. But it was Mm -hmm. also the month that it went out, the diagnostic manual. So it was the thing of where very often I was kind of coming up against individuals who were kind of like, oh, she's autistic. She's not going to do anything. She should just Mm -hmm. stay at home. Shouldn't do this. Shouldn't go into university. Um, which is quite limiting and sort of really boring because, like, why does happen? Why is it that if somebody has a box that's just kind of an extra, an add-on, or you know, disability, mental health, etc., why does that discount them from doing anything? It shouldn't do. We're a democratic society now. It's twenty twenty-four. Absolutely, royally screwed that. In my view, I <laughs> yeah. I did my NCTJ diploma, so that's the National Council for the Training of Journalists. 
-hmm. where you learn kind of sort of the basics, I think, is the way to put it. You can sort of build your own diploma in some practice centers there. So it's things such as shorthand, law, InDesign, that kind of thing. There are still a lot of barriers to individuals in this profession, and that's largely because... I feel like I should also point this out. Journalism is one of the most um, exclusive professions. We're just beaten by the medical field. Mm, so it is, even though things are slowly changing at a snail's pace, which is not very fast at all, um, <laughs> it's the thing of where kind of, I remember going on particular schemes, for example, and applying for them. And it was kind of, I had a novelty in that I'm a woman and also autistic because it's still the thing of where a lot of my contemporaries are still going, oh, autism, neurodiversity, hooray, Rain Man type thing, mm. which Rain Man has absolutely nothing to do with this. And it drives me a little bit mad when this comes across. I have been freelance for all of my working life as a result of this, because why would I want to play a game where the odds are stacked and the game is effectively rigged? Mm -hmm. I'm tired yeah. of conversations that say, we need to do more about diversity. Why do we have to do this kind of performance and kind of like, you know, speak to that? It's been an accepted truth for a long mm -hmm. time, over a decade, maybe 15, 20 years now. It's mm -hmm. not exactly a new idea. So therefore, why are we not putting this idea into practice? Deeds, mm -hmm. not words, and all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I feel like it's, it's it's talked about a lot and everyone's like, oh, it's really important. Oh, we need to do this. Oh, this is a you know key focus for us. And you're like, well, do it then. <laughs> like, exactly. it's like we, we know enough and you can talk to enough neurodivergent people to get the information you need to make the changes. People will tell you what they need. But yeah, it's just that, there seems to just be this like inability to actually shift industries into doing it. If I say, I, I was really inspired the other day. I had a conversation, um, can't tell you what the conversation was about because it's a story I'm working on, with my, <laughs> former, my former and possibly now current editor at the Daily Mail. And I say this with the caveat warning. Um, I think it's slightly naive when individuals say we can't, work for such and such a paper because there is as a media landscape titles are going titles are closing you can't necessarily afford to be as choosy as you once were mm. added to that each newspaper has its own kind of rules and what stories it would run and that kind of thing so the story i have i know that no other newspaper would run because it's so kind of not their thing so this is just to explain as to why I was talking to a Daily Mail journalist because people will give me so much of a hard time and they have done before. Mm, um, yeah. This is somebody I worked with in 2021 and we sort of uncovered um, at the official police watchdog there had been an issue with Cressida Dick that had not been examined fully and had not been put um, into the public domain over the stop and search of the athlete Bianca Williams. Mm -hmm. I found that by accident using a data application. This is just to explain the context. So mm -hmm. while I was just talking to him, there had been 
shall we say, issues that had been sort of running in the background, not between me and him, but kind of externally in different newsrooms that had had an impact. And I will be able to tell the story of this another day. But he said this thing to me, and I was really inspired by this, where he had talked to me about how he had proactively been hiring autistic people because he had started to recognise kind of later on how they were an asset. They weren't Mm. just... And he was telling me that he actually felt quite inspired by this. And I just thought, that's so wonderful that somebody Mm. has actually sat down, listened to us with the intent of understanding, rather than just sort Mm. of going, tell me your story and I'll make a lot of money and leave you alone afterwards. (laughs) That's so entitled. Rather than sort of learning from this experience. I think there needs to be more like that, the more of the doing rather than the same and the kind of like, shall we say, lip service? I think it's Mm -hmm. a bit harsh, but very true. (laughs) Yeah, no, that I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think, like, I think, not always, but I think people, um, employers, get the kind of fear of maybe not knowing enough or and almost just shutting down rather than being willing to learn and listen and to recognize the different talents that different people have Mm -hmm. and like actually having kind of I mean even just what you described at the start of kind of how your interest started in in journalism of like it just sounds like it just really works so well for your brain and what your interests are (laughs) that like just that you're like I really like to know everything about a topic (laughs) and like I will keep asking questions till I know everything and I'm like oh yeah that and journalism just make a lot of sense um and being able to and also I think having diverse perspectives obviously shifts the narrative because as we know historically we've had a very narrow view of who's writing the narratives and the news stories and you know everything we're reading Mm -hmm. media and bringing in more of that means you're going to get you know the way an autistic person is going to interpret an autistic story is going to be very different from the way you're a typical person so like to me it just like makes sense (laughs) I'm laughing because this has been actually something I've had to sort of reconcile um recently without going into too much detail um I was sat for the last oh 18 months to two years I've been looking at a particular story that involves an autistic individual I can't tell you what it is because um for a multitude of reasons however the thing was um it was a really kind of alienatory experience because the when I have been sat in town halls courtrooms in interviews I have been the only autistic person sat on the press bench while the autistic person is now convicted of doing something quite obscene and all the rest of it. So in this country, as soon as somebody is convicted of X, the Defamation Act and all the rest of it mean that effectively their reputation can't be harmed because they've done the most obscene thing. Therefore, you are free to cover and to write as much as you like, pretty much. Um, I was, frankly, shocked, amazed, but not surprised at the ableism on the part of the rest of the French press bench. And it Mm. was the thing of where I'm sort of have 
it's a really disconcerting experience when you can sort of, you know, translate for both sides of the aisle. Mm. I was talking to somebody recently and I asked them the question of how can you write something but without sanctifying because let's not forget this was a crime story but how Mm. to avoid stigmatizing because it was the thing where very often my colleagues would file their work and the word autistic was just an adjective in order to make this person seem more of a criminal yeah it just it was i had it was the expectation as well of where as soon as people start to realize you have a diagnosis of being autistic very often it's kind of like open field day of doing kind of like the emotional labor work for them Mm, so it's the thing where people very often they ask me quite invasive questions just because oh i'm curious about such and such I'm not a circus animal, neither are Mm. people who are like me. These are my friends. These are humans. How dare you ask invasive questions? So it can be, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in this podcast. So it's ranged from things kind of like, can autistic people have sex? Mm. Um, I thought this was sort of like, you know, (laughs) we're just like other people. We can choose to engage in that if we wish. Um, like we're not unlovable like i'm not sure Mm. there's so much to kind of unpacking the kind of the implications of such a question yeah but i was just amazed when somebody was asking me this um or it would be things like so this is sort of going on to into kind of more kind of physical disability um i have to use a cane when i'm walking around that's due to long covid um and the mess my body is um but it was the thing where I remember thinking, this will not define me, it will not outshine me. I'm just going to make have to make my peace with this because it's, mm-hmm. well, I've had to, behind the scenes, and one day I'll write about this fully, um, basically due to my gender and because of the fact that I'm also autistic, it was very much kind of like, oh, she can't make decisions for herself or we're going to say something really sexist and not listen to her. There is, I do not think that there is anything more that can be done for me, meaning that, the, you know, there has to be a cane in this because I, um, it was quite scary where if I walk sometimes, my body pulls itself to the ground very suddenly. I don't know when this is going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So I have to use a cane to, you know, to the bit that mm-hmm. holds me up. Very aware that looked very kind of weird, me doing that on the screen. <laughs> but the point of this is, um, I remember thinking that this is something just to be accepting of rather than just sort of like you know trying to hide away we think about disability physical mental neurodiversity whatever and kind of like very sort of gray terms very sort of depressing very kind of this is the end and like this is such a tragedy and all that kind of thing I went yeah. to Neo Walk, Neo Walk that does the light up canes so celebrities like Christina Applegate, Summer Blair have these um, mm. because uh, why ever the hell not should I have the pink cane with the bubbles that lights up? This is depressing. Yeah. And, like, you know, I thought I needed something nice to look at. The amount of people who ask me invasive questions when I'm out in public with this is, is off the scale sometimes. So it's been 
there's been a kind of variation of a very scary experience where I thought somebody was going to attempt to hurt me because of this in a social dominance kind of way. Or it would be things like, um, can you still dance around? Can you still do this? Can you show us off your dance moves? By a group of, they were about 14, this group of boys who just stopped me to ask me this question. Why is this acceptable? Mm. You wouldn't, like, you do not expect. We had a whole conversation of kind of allyship over the last few years and what that means. We need to be a part of this. It's not acceptable anymore. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's awful that that people and yourself are having to experience that as well um, ongoing. And just linking that to the, the media depictions of, and like, you know, as you said, I can see if you are a minority in a room of journalists and the general reporting on disability, autism, any anything tends to fall into these tropes and as you said using it as a feeding into people's stigma not I'm saying they're using it because it obviously it might be people who have these like hold these stigmas about disability um do you think we're in this kind of perpetuating cycle where people the you know the media and the rhetoric that we have is dehumanizing for disabled people and then because of that people absorb that and then obviously it's translating into I mean, you know, treating people really awfully and and being discriminatory in the streets and things like that. Yes, but with more nuance than it's typically portrayed. Mm. So by that, I mean, I don't think these, I do not tend to think in terms of, I don't think that most newspapers, most newspapers are not evil. No. I am not a fan of the sun, so I do not include the sun in this equation. Okay. Um, <laughs> Bar the sun. <laughs> it, it, it's the thing of where I have colleagues across all sides of the aisle. So I know people from The Guardian. I know people from The Sun. Generally speaking, they are all good individuals. Um, mm-hmm. When we talk about kind of can't say too much on this because of ongoing conversations and all the rest of it. When we talk about um, press behaviour and all the rest of it, I think that it's time to have a conversation about the impact of historical acts and to mm. have a bit of a clean-up. Because the, so with the kind of like the phone hacking stuff, that was horrible. That was evil and all the rest of it. Mm. We We... Journalists are not entitled to information. We do not hold special powers, and nor should we. That being said, however, on an ideological basis, we are a watchdog in the sense of protecting rights, rights of the individual. So when it comes to the court system and all that kind of thing, when it comes to politicians and party gate and that kind of unethical thing, mm-hmm. I think it's a balancing act in the way that we are set up so by that I mean I think that it's time to have a more nuanced conversation rather than just saying journalist bad journalist good Mm -hmm. there is a mixture and it's the thing of where um how am I going to put this um I do not think that we should be in the way that we talk about ethics and that kind of thing 
we should not be deciding what media outlets exist because that's media plurality. It's we had this mm-hmm. we had the reverse of this when Rupert Murdoch took over the Sunday Times, for example, back in the nineteen eighties, yeah. where everyone was kind of saying, "Oh, Rupert Murdoch can't have like you know too much of a dominance. He shouldn't have a dominance. No person should have a proprietal dominance of news." Mm. But it's kind of the reverse in the sense of we can't choose what outlets should exist. We can choose what to consume as consumers Mm. of what to read. So whatever your preference may be. Um, But it's also the thing of where standards have to matter. And by that, I mean, so with the kind of, I try not to be too political on this. Um, There are, there are conversations about the press watchdog and all the rest of it. The press watchdog came about after the Leveson inquiry, which was all oh, either ten or fifteen years ago now. Mm-hmm. It's the thing of where not much has changed, and standards are kind of slippery in my profession I think that must be Mm -hmm. why I'm freelance because it's the thing of where very often in newsrooms I I ask for standards that are higher very often in terms particularly in terms of how we treat people in terms of Mm -hmm. how we talk to people and how we talk about them um as I said we're not entitled to information we as soon as you start to grant unfettered power to any kind of group that's when things go wrong and we should Mm. be aware of this i so in terms of the cycle i do agree that there is the human there is dehumanization we have seen this with the current palestinian conflict for example the language that has been used has been proven in some outlets Mm. there is masses of research and sophia smith gala the wonderful journalist who wrote losing it has been brilliant at researching and putting together the impact such as on her Instagram page but there is a kind of a push and pull in the sense of who the product is for and who is reading it so it's not Mm. if I put it like this it's not just on us it's also the demand for it there needs to be a nuance I think Mm. no that makes a lot of sense to me and I think so in some cases, just to check my understanding, I guess, as well, is that that because using certain language is going to tap into people's own biases or viewpoints, that journalists may choose that language because of that. But is there some cases where actually it's just maybe a lack of understanding or like Definitely. knowledge of the impact of language so it could be a bit of both of those things happening in different circumstances definitely um so the the story that i referenced earlier with the autistic man to say somebody with autism has historical context that very often people do not realize added to that it the way that some of my colleagues were writing this, it was done specifically as a way to dehumanise because this person had been convicted. Mm. And it's the thing of where 
regardless of what somebody has done, regardless of the obsceneness of whatever offence they've committed, there is still a justice system. There has to be a functioning justice system that has rights and that also has standards in the way we treat people. We are a democratic mm. country. We are not and we're not, you know, kind of like this authoritarian state, mostly. Um, it's the thing where uh, the language was specifically chosen to kind of make this as an add-on. It's just the detail in the ruling itself, and I sat in the courtroom when this was happening, when the sentencing was read out, it was specifically said that the, uh, somebody who has a diagnosis of autism was not more likely to be more violent as a result of possessing a different neurology. They are mm. not more likely to commit a violent act. They are just like the rest of the population. I really, really, really admired the judge for having such an understanding and for specifically making a point. So in a courtroom, mm. sentencing remarks can now be seen on TV. So before that started and before he read this out, he had been talking to the rest of the kind of legal cast, shall we say. So it was, you know, prosecution, defence, clerks, that kind of thing. Um, where he specifically made the point of saying, I want to say something about this to avoid stigma to other people mm. who might, you know, mm. be impacted as a result of this. Not one journalist, not one article has made a point to put this in the piece or to write about it. I was worried you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, that is that is unbelievable. So it, would that be intentional then of being like, we know that? Because you, you see it a lot where media articles will highlight somebody's autistic but, and it seems so irrelevant because you're like, but that has absolutely nothing to do with, yeah, the crime they've committed or whatever it is. It's It doesn't seem um, to link. So, it, But is it a thing that they know by putting that in, it's going to other that person more? So they would disregard, like, it, I just, I'm just wondering how conscious it is. <laughs> depends on the story, to be totally honest. So for this one, um, for this, the autistic element, shall we say, the kind of the elephant in the room, it played a part in the proceedings because it was the framework for the defence when going to trial. So it was saying, because I am autistic, this is what happened type thing. I can't give you too much about this. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's fine. But the the thing about this was, so in the sentencing, the judge also makes the finding that the to be autistic probably had an impact in the way that the person who is now convicted was thinking and interacting and kind of interpreting and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It probably had an impact. However, it does not make, first of all, it doesn't make the violent action excusable. It's not, um, yeah. you know, it's not a legitimate, it's not a legitimation or mitigation. Added to that, just because you're autistic doesn't mean you're going to be violent. Yeah, because a lot of people might have those challenges, but it does not all autistic people commit that commit a crime because they've got you know all certain differences. <laughs> that is a stereotype that has kind of 
it's always been in existence. Um, mm. The sort of thing of where, like, you know, because we don't make eye contact, we, therefore we must be lying and up to no good and all the rest of it, mm. that, all that mm. sort of nonsense. Um, so I think it depends on the journalist, but it's also in terms of the story and the context to what it is. So bearing in mind, we very often have a word count, so it may, like, you know, 750 words is not a lot where you have to fit in all mm. the other relevant information quotes etc but there are some journalists that I have come across since I graduated that would definitely be doing this deliberately I tend not to associate with them because why would I yeah <laughs> makes sense yeah it's nuanced it's not just it's not like a it's not kind of like a definitive yes or no. It's kind of in the middle, shall we say. <laughs> mm, that's really interesting. And so for you, when you're kind of navigating this realm of being your career, um, I mean, do you feel like you almost have to take on a certain level of extra responsibility? Because Definitely. <laughs> yeah because you're like the person I mean obviously it sounds like people are coming to you and asking you invasive questions on one side of it um but like yeah I, I, I don't know I mean how much does that impact on like wh- how you, what you do do you feel like you're constantly having to ex- try and contextualize and explain things to people or what does that kind of look like um so my new year's resolution for this year was to have better boundaries in place over this um okay. simply <laughs> because it shouldn't why should it be on me to explain all the different new ones, particularly if somebody does not have the intent of understanding? Mm. So by that I mean very often I was being asked, I've always been asked questions by other journalists about this from the moment I graduated, even when I was doing the work experience to graduate, I was being asked this sort of questions. If you do not have the intent of understanding and doing better, why should I spend my time and the emotional energy attached to this explaining and therefore justifying my existence? Let's not forget, because this is undoubtedly, it can be personal to somebody who just doesn't care. Why should I do this? It should not be Mm. on me to carry it's quite a weighted expectation I am happy to so I sort of justify it like this I am happy to talk to people if they first of all are respectful so they don't just kind of ask you know we've sort of talked about this um Mm -hmm. but also in the sense of that I have autonomy and I can withdraw that consent I do not have to, you know, stick around and answer every possible question. And if it's a company or an organization, that's consultancy. So they should be paying you, not just me in this context, mm-hmm. they should be paying you for your expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that really makes a lot of sense. And I think, I mean, yeah, people should not expect like certain people, certain groups to do the emotional labor and like be responsible for their learning and their education. Like it should be a process of taking their own responsibility to go and find out more and yeah I I think there's a nuance between approaching it in a I'd really like your perspective on this versus you know the example you gave I'm entitled to 
yeah, you you are the person that needs to tell me this information and I'm really not considering actually what impact that has on you. And because, you know, asking really stigmatizing personal questions to a person causes harm. Like it's, it's, it's not just a neutral thing to request of a person. So it's loaded, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah, I think. um, Can I just make the point about the economy, the economic value in this? Because this is, Mm -hmm. this quite shocked me when I sort of realized this. Um, I was writing last year and I had this idea for a project connected to emotional labor. So I started Mm -hmm. to research it because it's also quite a gendered thing. Generally speaking, women do a lot more emotional labor than a guy would. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean with the typical kind of cisgender setup type thing. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely amazed to find this this statistic blew my mind. I was listening to Kat Moran, the Times journalist. He wrote How to Be a Woman. She was, around that kind of time, she was doing kind of like promotional stuff. I'm sorry if I'm pausing, by the way. It's sometimes I have um, like long COVID impacted like the translation from brain to mouth. So sometimes I sound a bit odd when I'm talking still. Um, no, it's absolutely fine. It, she had this statistic where she's talking about emotional labour expectations, so women having to do the childcare and all the rest of them, and how that kind of, the standard that we had was kind of walked back during lockdown. It was just reset. So if you take in, there is a podcast that she was talking about this, and it's in one of her books as well. I think it's called More Than a Woman, the second, the follow-up to How to Be a Woman. She talked about all of the unpaid emotional labor that a woman does. So that's, you know, getting the children ready, getting school, all the kind of that kind of thing. So all of the unpaid acts of emotional labor, she pointed this out in this podcast where where she says the economic value in the UK of every single individual that is added up is worth the same GDPR economic value as such as places like China. Mm-hmm. That's amazing for all of that unpaid mm-hmm. labour. Should mm-hmm. we not be, you know, paid for our time? And imagine yeah, when kind of that sort of thing comes up, I feel it's always important to point out if you have... X, Y, Z, condition, neurodiversity, disability, choose your language of choice. If you have that, very often the standard is double. It's doubled Mm. even. So Mm. it's things like um, there is an autism gender gap in employment. I interviewed the PhD student who's now a doctor who contextualised this during lockdown, where autistic women in employment are penalised and have to effectively work twice as hard as their autistic male counterpart. He is the Rain Man kind of subordinate character who is praised, yet if she's not socialised, she's held to the neurotypical standard. Why is that, and how do we stop it? Um, It's the thing where I'm currently trying to put together a second book. It's to do with policing and disability, not just about my people, shall we say. Um, Yeah. And part of one of the chapters is to do with um, sexism and misogyny in policing. So 
I want to point out statistically, if you're disabled, so physically neurodiverse, etc., you are more likely to be at the risk of violence, such as if you have a caregiver or a partner, etc. But it is significantly harder to report this to the police as a crime because you are not taken as being, you know, serious. It's always the thing of, oh, she's just in it for the money type thing. And it's very often, mm. if you read into it, it's always the story of how kind of, if somebody has experienced X, Y, Z, they then have to justify this to people in positions of power. That shouldn't be the case. Mm. Yeah, no, that I, I think, I mean, I think that's really important <laughs> to highlight that. And because um, it was actually something that I was looking at in uh, research recently, um, was trying to look at how intersectional intersectional identities and how yeah people are dis- disadvantaged in uh, the criminal justice system and spaces like that and I think that's the thing that is also it is really important is that people don't often consider the the different layers of so like I think um, workplace accommodations and thing like things like that are really important because obviously there's like the focus on um, equality in gender and then there's also the considerations about uh, access uh, accessibility for um disabled people in work but often these things don't they don't marry up they don't marry up and they don't consider that those kinds of extra disadvantages that certain groups and certain people are going to experience so yeah I think that's a really important point um I have so many follow-up questions <laughs> trying to pick one trying to pick one um um yes yeah, so before we move on to kind of talking about your 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 other 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 things you do um I just wanted to ask kind of about um a bit more about the kind of work that you do and if there's anything like I don't know what, what the things that you write about and the topics you cover and obviously you you're now um, an editor so like is the bulk of the work you the uh the articles you write in kind of disability um or is there kind of like a wide spanning like yeah what does your kind of career look like in that sense oh gosh this is such a great question um and I say that in respect of for a very long time I had trouble defining myself so it's very often whenever I give interviews etc um people write about me and my work as the autistic journalist that Mm. is my chief bugbear on this earth currently I'm not the autistic journalist I'm a freelance and an award-winning one at that who just happens to be I don't spend my time on this most of my work does not constitute you know being sort of autistically related I'm not sure that's a word but it is now um (laughs) so I would describe myself as I cover disability and social inequality. Um, So if we say about other endeavours, I love this phrasing, by the way. Um, (laughs) So I I edit the in-house newsletters for Accessable. I'm also an ambassador for them. That constitutes, it can be anything such as social media production, so editing, video, that kind of thing to presenting I some sometimes they ask you to give talks and things I gave a talk at Sussex uh, Suffolk Suffolk University last <laughs> year for example 
Um, I somehow have acquired the term author along with this. Um, I really want to write more books and I really, 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 really would love to do at least one more. Shout out to any agents I'm looking to, for representation. <laughs> I have a proposal to send. Um, I pitch, uh, pitch. That's not. <laughs> I pitch ad hoc to my contact network. So at the moment, I'm writing for Women's Health, writing an article for them, writing two for Happy. F- Is it pronounced Happy Fall? I'm not sure how you mm-hmm. pronounce the title. Mm-hmm. Um. I run my own Substack, and at the and as a kind of focus six six project, the book has been rolled out into a course that will be I will be teaching on where I live, and I'm also editing Disability Review magazine. Make of this what you will. I'm very aware that this is kind of like oh my god, that's a lot. Um, but it's freelance. They're like tiny projects. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And do you do you personally like enjoy that kind of the fact that you are able to do such a diverse range of projects and pick it up, or like kind of what are the 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 challenges and the kind of positives of of that way of, of being freelance, basically? Uh, this is a very yes and no question. So I enjoy the fact that I have the freedom and greater control than what a newsroom would perhaps afford to me mm-hmm. that being said sometimes that payment practices in the UK are just an absolute joke to be totally honest about this um that also some work is very low paid you have to generate your own ideas constantly um I actually started a course of CPT last year I'm too, there were, shall we say, feelings of, well, I felt very trapped. I'm autistic. I'm part of the least employed disability group in the UK. I'm very unlikely to get into a newsroom because the, the placement is just not there to meet my access needs. It's also very kind of London-centric. Added to that, I have the typical spiky profile. I'm not good at anything else. I have no other skills. So I can do the kind of like, you know, video editing and that kind of thing. But it's things such as I'm not particularly great at phone calls. I can't do the initiating or picking up the phone. I have to script it out and all that kind of thing. That would make, you know, people very often go from being journalist to press officer for any kind of organization picking up the phone while you're on a press line mm. no thank you <laughs> yeah no that's that makes a lot of sense so do you think that like what what do you think could shift in the industry that could make it more accessible for neurodivergent or generally disabled um, people to be able to work as journalists? How long do you have? I'll be asking. That's a big (laughs) question. I apologise for the big question. A few things would be lovely. (laughs) uh, So first of all, there needs to be less of a reliance on being London-centric. And I say this in the sense of it's not just newsrooms being based in London. It's also the 
frankly, there was, I had to deal with a lot of entitlement of where it was kind of like, oh, Lydia lives in Sussex, therefore Lydia can come into London and we will never ever go down towards her. I graduated in 2018. There has only been one occasion, and that was last year, but in December, in fact, when somebody actually offered to come down to me. And I think that speaks volumes. Not all yeah. the best stories are in London. There is a wonderful book um, about news gathering and fundamentally how it could be better, not that it's disability specific. And it makes the very interesting point that journalists like to write about other journalists. If you want your paper to be read, why does anyone care what your mate's doing down the pub? Nobody mm. cares about that kind of story. They care about, you know, kind of police corruption, like all the kind of like mm. the things that we've been talking about very often kind of like scandalised terms over the last few years. Nobody cares about what other journalists are doing and very often kind of, shall we say, old guard, forget this. I think also in terms of the physical element of physical access to newsrooms, the journalist Lucy Webster made the point that very often they are not wheelchair accessible. Mm. So I make this point simply on the basis that wheelchairs are not just a manual vehicle, shall we put it like that? And people get mm -hmm. really shocked when I point this out to them. I'm not really sure why. A wheelchair is the manual thing that is self-propelling. But then you've also got power chairs. Power chairs are substantially bigger that way, therefore meaning that the door frame needs to be bigger. If it's wheelchair accessible, it is not power chair accessible. Mm. I don't understand why that's such kind of a revelationary concept so <laughs> yeah. just I, I mean this seriously because it's things like friends of mine who I adore very much I have missed out on socializing with them simply because they can't even get in the door there was a mm. incident last year where there was how am I going to put this in non-defamatory terms um a friend of mine couldn't get into an event that we were both going to I see her once a year Hmm. so having sort of found this out it was the thing where I thought well I'm not going either hmm. I'm relatively able-bodied I sometimes use a cane to support me but if you're the very simple concept is nothing about us without us that includes everyone in my view it's not just autistic hmm. people it is not just long COVID individuals it's not just one group over the other. We're in this together, in my view. So it's rather than sort of talking about diversity and that kind of thing when it comes to, shall we say, disability as kind of like, you know, factions almost, take it as a whole. So make it a practice that is across the board rather than sort of going into the detail in order to duck your obligations talk to us mm. don't just talk to like us as one mass but consider the kind of like the umbrella of the experience mm. yeah no I think that's a really really important point and like it is just absolutely horrifying that we're in 2024 and people are still not able to access spaces like it just especially because it it's literally a breach of human rights like it's you know it, it's it's quite unbelievable but this is always a point I make kind of in my work 
um, related to um, in- inclusivity for neurodivergent people is that we're not even meeting standards for like physical disability and like wheelchair users to be able to access spaces and like those are the stuff that traditionally there's a lot more legislation and understanding and like building regs and stuff in place for that that I'm like neurodivergent people and people with hidden and visible disabilities whatever term they tend to use now um I think that again it's that other layer of just like that that there's a the access challenges can be yeah it's it's just it's so far behind where we really should be at nowadays I don't know if that reflects like your understanding or your knowledge of this as well definitely it was things such as um I went to a concert in December I was in I'm not going to name the venue actually um so <laughs> it's um what absolutely astounded me so the accessible bathroom it had on the door, it had a chalk message of DDA, the Disability Discrimination Act. That was superseded by the Equality Act in 2010. It's not, uh, mm. it, that piece of legislation is not sort of around anymore. I mm. had my cane with me, and it was a really good thing because it bas- basically the assignment had meant that for about five and a half hours, I had had to stand up. That mm. had repercussions shall we put it like that um i went to the use the disabled access bathroom i have my radar key and i will it's the thing where i'd come out and this woman she must have been maybe five or six years older than me she was not that old she made such a comment where she said the phrase oh you're actually disabled (laughs) why is it controversial in the respect of where a human being has a has a place to pierce like it just it just sort of blew my mind as to the kind of general we should not be we do not have any control over other people yeah so why is it that we have this kind of idea in public life that we have to be policing other individuals particularly when it's kind of on a scaremongering type basis it's um a friend of mine she spoke to me previously in the podcast where she was talking about the dichotomy between kind of tragedy versus inspiration. She is a sports individual, so she's a journalist, but she also plays professionally and is mm-hmm. brilliantly wonderful at what she does. She's won so many awards on this. So she will go from where she'll, you know, win at whatever sport um, match it is and she'd be told, oh, you're so inspirational by strangers mm. for the just because, you know, oh, she has a wheelchair, therefore she's a hero type thing. Versus mm. being referred to, um, she told me a story where she was getting out of a car, a car that she can drive that is perfectly safe. And how she was told um, and sort of screamed at for being a scrounger. There's this idea that, like, it's just sort of the radical dichotomy of sort of from X to Y in that was just sort of breathtaking. Added to, I think, so to come back to your early question about dehumanization, politicians who have no idea about disability should not be in charge of this. There should also Mm. be a disabled person's minister. Um, 
So when we talk very much about kind of like cuts to the benefit system and all the rest of it, does anyone realise how actually hard it is to receive any support? <laughs> just, yeah. This is a question because it's things like um, I applied for a personal independence payment. That started off the book I wrote for the sheer for the sheer fucking audacity of the Department for Work and Pensions, who basically said, oh, she's autistic, she can learn around that. I can't just learn out of my neurology hands, like, I will always be autistic. I mean, yeah, just the sheer audacity of such a statement. Mm. It took me over a year to have any support, and that was because I took it to tribunal. It's not like we just suddenly go into the job centre and go, oh, we just like, you know, we yeah. came, we saw, we robbed. I mean, now we've got all these money bags that we can sort of shake. It's not like that. Yeah, that's but definitely it's... the like narrative that you, it, the way that it's portrayed though. And I think it definitely feeds into, yeah, that kind of social policing that you get where people, it's just this like, you're too, dis- you know, you're too disabled to be here or you're not disabled enough or you're, it's all these like, really specific criteria and yeah just this view of like because it's like disabled people have to really prove it to get your money and like these are all the kind of narratives that you hear and you're like you're right it does not map onto the actual reality of what people are experiencing it's just I recently had to sit through a pit renewal and the audacity of that was just breathtaking to me so it's things such as I now use a cane that should not be a controversial thing. I don't, it's an, I can never say this word, ambulatory, where you sometimes need it, sometimes don't. That's, I've totally butchered that pronunciation. <laughs> so I don't, I do not need it around my house or when I'm inside a building because there are walls. Mm. So it's the thing mm. of where I can put my hands up to kind of navigate around. If I'm going on a long journey, or if I'm just popping to a shop on my same road, I need it for then. That should not be controversial. However, it was the thing of where this was going into... I'm not even... Sh- I sort of wanted to question whether the questions I, would, I was being asked were even part of a script, because it mm. a lot of it felt kind of invasive and the tone sort of changed towards the end. So it was the thing of where kind of like... I experienced two depressive episodes. I also have a diagnosis for anxiety now, partly due to long COVID, but also partly due to a horrible experience I had at work. So it started to get into this kind of territory where the assessor starts asking questions like, has she had any dark thoughts? And further on from that, to which I do... I am not able to do phone calls. My mother was speaking and I was sort of, shall we say, supervising. Um, <laughs> to which they said, well, I'm not answering that because it's the kind of the fetish, fetish, fetishization as well. In Being Human by Judy Human, the mother of the disability rights movement, she talks about this experience of where she goes to get her teacher's license and has to sit this extra interview for some godforsaken reason where she is talking to the person who will give her the license in order to practice as a teacher but it starts with questions that are fairly innocuous like you know how would you teach 
And then it starts to go demonstrate how you would do this, demonstrate how you would do that. And the last question was demonstrate to me how you would go to the bathroom. It's no relevance. So she was denied the license and that sort of, that sort of began the kind of the revelation, uh, the revolution, sorry, in the US around kind of disability rights and all the rest of it. It's such a brilliant story. But oh, wow. it's the thing of kind of history goes around in cycles, some would say. Mm. It's becoming, we are progressing back far too much. We're not going forward. We're not becoming, you know, socially liberal, etc., whatever you want to call it. We're not becoming accommodating. And that's just not on my profession. I say this as a societally having observed this through, I see friends, I see family and all the rest of it. It's, I see tiny fractures of hope sometimes, Mm -hmm. but it's so disheartening at the best of times. I always feel when it comes to subjects like this, I always want to make a joke at the end of it just because like, keep up and, you know... (laughs) The sort of like keep calm, everyone, and carry on. Yeah, I know it's really it's it 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 can get it can get deep, and it can it 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 feels like a story that has no hope. Um, but yeah, I think it as you said, the cycles happen, and I think it's because there's been such a push from like I mean for ad from advocates and people shouting like things need to be better that you get this like really strong pushback and then so things Mm. seem so much worse and then they shift but it even like I I agree like in the research realm like because I'm situated in autism research it's so polarized at the moment you've got people on one side who are all about really like you know we don't want to treat fix the individual we need to change society and improve understanding and all of this and then you have the other side who are pushing back so heavily against that um and it it just becomes so you feel like it's a lost cause and there's no progress being made and I just have to keep reminding myself that you've just got to keep going and progress is happening and it's just it's just hard (laughs) and it does kind of feel really disheartening and having to constantly be like why are people still not able to just not not be nice (laughs) I got in trouble for this um my smart mouth running away with itself but I'll tell you um this has sort of become kind of like a almost like a branded type thing um basically um when I was filming just before the second lockdown, so this was in December 2021, I think this was, I was filming and I was being asked kind of like deep and personal questions like to present to you on camera, talking from lived experience perspective. So this is before I caught COVID-19. Um I hadn't realised that the camera was rolling. I thought it was kind of pleasantry, sort of Mm one-on-one. So the question was, how can a non-disabled person be a better ally to a disabled individual? Um, I thought this was not being filmed. I hadn't quite realised. To which which I said, well, just don't be a dick. That's just fundamentally... (laughs) 
like the rule number one, two, three, all the way to 100 type thing. And I hadn't realised, and this was all caught on camera. So I'm in Piccadilly Circus and kind of like, you know, showing all the sorts of different features and all that sort of thing, presenting respectable as a face on camera, apparently. Mm. Um, where I filmed with the same lovely individuals for the same company last year, around this time last year. And it's the thing where um, regularly they will send me things like hashtag team don't be a dick. <laughs> Just as a kind of... Um, what I hadn't realised is that they had they had promptly told um, my boss that because we, <laughs> they, they had told her, going, we thought this is really funny, we can't put it into the final product, but this was absolutely hilarious to them. What I did not realise, um, she didn't tell me that she knew. She had known for months that this had gone on, um, and it was the thing of sort of skirting around such an issue where I'm going, did uh, so-and-so tell you about um, kind of a verbal gaffe that I made? Um, She'd known all along. But the point of that being, fundamentally, if, if you want to be a human being who is just generally a good person... If you ever come across somebody who ticks a box that's just an extra on the end of this, rule number one through a hundred is basically don't be a dick. Just yeah. kind of, you can do all the possible training, you can do all the possible, you know, mm-hmm. sit down sessions, reading books, etc. Mm-hmm. But you can still be an absolute dick about it if you even if you've got this yeah. knowledge. Yeah, I think that makes I I mean I wholeheartedly agree. I fully stand by that as an answer. So this is it's such a catchphrase. It's going to follow me to my grave. I think. Oh, at, at least it's a good. At least it's a good one. I and very accurate. I think that um I I also regularly say things of that tone. Just yeah, I've never had that on camera or anything. Though, so that's quite impressive. Uh, I think that's actually a good place now we've brought it back up into a high um to talk about um uh some of your other projects as well um so obviously you mentioned at the start that you're the author of the autism friendly cookbook um Mm -hmm. which actually got a shout out in the first episode of the podcast with emily did it oh thank you yeah that's so lovely to hear yeah so um I think that we definitely need to talk more about that now. Um, and could you just like tell us more about like about the book and some context as to like how it came about and like what what it what is the book? <laughs> uh, how it came about was because I got more than a bit cross at the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, mm-hmm. In the first lockdown, I was made aware that I was eligible for a personal independence payment. Um, to put it like this, I basically had no support from the point of my ASD diagnosis. Like, I just had nothing, really. It was all kind of geared towards, oh, get her past her exams, and then that's it, kind of like off a cliff face type thing. Um, so the thing in applying, the odds are not stacked in your favour, and I really mm. want to underline it because it's such a privileged system. I have... I was living at home at the time and I was able to wait because I had the support to wait to go to tribunal. I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know how bad it was going to be. (laughs) So 
when the reports prior to tribunal came back and it basically said that I could learn how to do X, Y, Z skill. One of them was, oh, she could just learn how to cook. Do you not think I would have learned by now? I can't just learn my way out of my brain. And it's such a harmful concept because it's enforcing masking. Masking Mm -hmm. needs a nuanced conversation, but it does have a detrimental impact on mental health, etc. So over the course of about four days, this was sort of burning a hole in my brain is the best way I could put it. And that's... That tends to be when I know that I had something good as an idea that I can turn into a tangible project or it needs the attention to sort of actualize itself. Um, So over the course of four days, there was a combination of I was staying up into the early hours, so not midnight, but kind of like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., that kind of hours, scribbling away in kind of notebooks. Added to that, I was also having conversations journalistically, but also personally, mm-hmm. with sort of my contact book. Um, so friends, family, acquaintances, people that I'd met sort of on the road as a journalist. And through these conversations, I sort of started to realise that my experience had a kind of universal element to it in that there was a gap. There were, we have a generation that were effectively missed because of the diagnostic criteria and its fundamental flaws and all the rest of it. That generation is now playing catch up. So very often we see stories such as, oh, I'm in my mid 40s and I've only just found out I'm autistic type thing. That generation has missed so much and they're playing catch up. Added to that, there's also a second tangent where more and more research is starting to say that underdiagnosed autism in teenage girls is possibly going to be linked to eating disorders. I do not buy into this ridiculous argument of feminists who are against trans people where they basically say, oh, that's because they don't want to be a woman. I didn't buy into that. It has no kind of scientific basis because it's the sensory issues that are manifesting. They're manifesting in a way that is about controlling the input, the output, and it's not good. So it's the thing of where that... My mother sometimes jokes that she can hear my brain sort of wearing away even if I was 100 miles away. It was sort of like I was staying up sort of obsessively for about four days um, over this. And they were just kind of, it was sort of <laughs> nonsense, kind of like brain dumping type thing. In, sep- in the September of that year, my mentor also died very suddenly. Um, he was in his 90s. But the thing about this was, um, so Harold Evans was the former editor of the Sunday Times. He was the... Journalist who has set campaign uh, standards for investigations. So the kind of investigative journalism you see is because of that. Um, so it's things such as he campaigned to compensate the thalidomide children, who they had taken this drug that was sold under the name Distavol in the UK, and that led to birth defects such as with limb differences and all the rest of it. 
and there were elements of state cover-ups, not necessarily to Sal's. Part of the he managed to find part of the story as to how this had happened, and in came about in kind of 2013, 2014, that the origins of such a drug were in the Nazi concentration camps. I adored Harry. He was such a wonderful human being. We I got to know him basically because I was selfish enough to say I'd like to really interview you because you seem really interesting and it was the interesting thing of where I had talked to him and afterwards he basically said I want to talk to you now I want to ask questions and so he ended up being half an hour late for his next appointment um I'm not that interesting but over the he was my mentor he was my friend he was my editor the last conversation I had with him before he died, he had phoned me up since, and I had just had a dental procedure. So I was in pain and not sleeping. So this was around kind of midnight UK time. I was in conversations to ghostwrite a biography of one of the thalidomide campaigners at the time. So I told him this and it was like a kid in a sweet shop. Like the sort of excitement from zero to a hundred was just amazing. Where all of a sudden he starts going, Oh, so you need to interview this person, and this is how you ask these questions, and this is the story, and blah blah blah. And he said this without taking a breath. And then he goes at the end of this, if you ever sign a contract, send it to me and I will vet this for you. The very act of having faith in another person is something that's very powerful. And I think it is highly underrated. We do not do this often enough. It was the thing where kind of in this, there was a sort of vacuum after he died where I have never had so many phone notifications, but it was there was only one person who actually goes, how are you doing? Everybody else is going, have you seen the news? Harold Evans has died. Nobody asked me how I felt or if I was okay. There was just one person. And I think that says a lot about the kind of reaction. Mm -hmm. So in that kind of vacuum, it was the most kind of upsetting thing. And the kind of, it sounds totally stupid, but the kind of the two things just sort of clashed in such a wonderful way. Mm -hmm. I went to, I pitched the book and then by January, 2021, I'd been offered the contract. I asked for there was a conversation around we want an illustrator and it was very important for me to have somebody the project is almost a hundred percent shall we say disabled mentally or neurodiverse all the rest of it virtually every single person who worked on that book to make it happen is under one of these categories it was very important to me to give that and to have that kind of platform so Emily came along because she was the first person I thought of. I was given a brief and I was told make this happen. And it was I was struggling to kind of describe what was up here to get it out on paper. So it was the she's just so wonderful to work with. I would draw like this massive scribble, try my best to explain <laughs> it, and she would come up with just amazing things to put in the book. And she was just so wonderful. And she, I think she forgave me for my insolence. And that sense. 
<laughs> oh my god she must have a type because I think that's how I work with her as well whenever I've done things I'm literally like I have this thing that I can picture and I'll either describe it really badly or scribble something and then she's just like does something that's a million times better than what I was trying to describe it she like gets it well, it seems like um, in the book there's an illustration to demonstrate spoon sizes because I was trying to make the point that we need to teach these cookery skills explicitly because they're very often just sort of assumed. Mm. That doesn't work for autistic people. Mm-hmm. And if we taught them explicitly at a standardised way, it would suit so many people. It's not just us. Um, so one of them was a lot of the time individuals would come and they would say, I don't understand the spoon sizing and kind of what it means and all the rest of it. The idea for the illustration came from my oldest friend. My oldest friend who refers to herself as being my evil stepmother. She is, it's just amazing. It's just amazing to me, right? Because in the book, there are some in-house jokes specific to people. Mm. And is it, she's the only person who's picked up on any of them. Oh, really? like there is a kind of, yeah there is that's how I know basically no one's actually read it they bought a copy but sort of use it for reference <laughs> anyway so she read the kind of like the she read part of the manuscript and she had this idea where she goes why don't you have the spoons to show the sizes like on a spectrum type thing hmm. I said that to Emily I said make it a half page or a whole page the choice is yours and she was just so wonderful where she goes I've got this idea but I've also got this one and I've got that and she had about four or five different options per page Mm. that was just amazing we were going oh you choose this Lydia um you make it best however you see fit this is this is just a partnership that was just dreamy Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that I love that. And I think it clearly translates into into the book. And uh, so thinking about kind of what people can expect from the book, is it like, what kinds of challenges or, or like adaptations do you see in this book versus kind of a general cooking book? Is it like, cause obviously you mentioned there about like, t- talking about things in a way that's more accessible, but like, the recipe is meant to be like uh more straightforward or uh sensory friendly or kind of what what are the what kind of things do you get in the book from that before i answer this question the title was chosen because autism is a spectrum so it cannot possibly be suitable for every autistic added to that it does not ki- it does not take into account other comorbidities simply because nobody would publish such a book and it cannot account for the sheer and utter nuance there is I want to put this in place because I was given such a hard time by the internet when this book came out. Um, And I still receive, quite frankly, either creepy or quite shitty messages privately from people who've Mm. gone out, read it, and want to tell me how terrible a person I am. Um, So the book is divided into two parts. The first, so the second part is 100 recipes. 30 of those are taken from other autistic people, one who is Emily at 21 in Sensory. The idea was to change the format of a recipe. So there is a, before we start cooking, for example, there's a stage of pre-preparation. So very often, if you have executive functioning issues, you might want to assemble the ingredients so you have them out beforehand. Whereas I just, from observation, a lot of neurotypical people are just like, yeah, let's freestyle this. Oh, but I don't understand why this has not worked. Um, yeah. 
it's that it's I've tried my best to make the language as simple as possible at the back there is also an index because we have such a we have so many weird terms so what does a pinch of a, a sprinkle of mean <laughs> like that was always the question. I was that thinking came about up. that. Yeah, I was thinking when you said um, earlier about spoon sizes. I was just like, oh my god, the standing there and being like, what is the, like how big a tablespoon do do people have? Like it's by the normal size spoon and like a pinch shop. I'm always like, I, I, yeah, I yeah, I I I think that those things are vague. Yeah, it's too vague, and I tried to put the definition down on paper. All of the recipes have a category or a key, sorry, where Emily has illustrated. So I want to be specific about this. There's a variety. There's 100 recipes. They're divided by breakfast, lunch, dinner, and miscellaneous. Some are vegetarian. Some are for meat eaters. Some are for vegan. There is a mix of sensory profiles in between as well. The amount of kind of like... And I say this because I got a lot of vegan individuals who were criticising me for apparently hating vegans. I don't hate vegans. Why would I? There's vegan recipes in this. It's none of my business what you like to eat. Like, you know, that's just a sort of like a statement of fact almost. Like, I just, it was just utterly bizarre to me. Um, so, and it's got the kind of like, it's broken down. It gives the time duration has been changed so it's from start to finish not just the cooking time um part one is an amalgamation of different things try that try to break down basically what the issue is so why is the kitchen such a hostile space the i also included information about sensory profiles because this just astounds me the amount of people who have no idea what a sensory profile is and that's because in the very often in Western countries, when a diagnosis is made, they just tell you, oh, you're autistic, bye. Um, yeah. <laughs> they don't tell you the kind of like, you know, the nuance of what this means. They just say, oh, you've got this, mm. be gone type thing. <laughs> go and, and work it of, out. <laughs> yes. Well, it's true, isn't it? You have to sort of like, you know, go away and work this yourself. It took me six years to realise in any sense that I needed help in some things or that this was the issue, so to speak. Mm. Um, I also looked at things such as adaptations that could be made, as well as strategies. So it's things such as, very often, there's this idea of, oh, just struggle, therefore you will learn. Why is it such a crime if somebody struggles to open jars and things to have an adaptation in place? Because this idea of there is a right way to do cooking is... It's, it's nonsense you can use a jar opener just in this one scenario where you very mm-hmm. is quickly it's inexpensive yeah. and it's not a failure but then you also have the kind of loaded thing so in the book and this was extracted on mashable i think it was um i sort of wanted to give kind of like the supporting cast a list of rules so by that I mean mm-hmm. parents, teachers, guardians, care people, etc. There's this idea of a disabled person is just kind of forever a child. And by that mm. I mean the sort of the infantilization. As soon as you say, I'm autistic, um, it's I always get if I go into a medical appointment, for example, they start to talk to me very loudly and very slowly. That's first of all, it's offensive. Second of all, it's 
more than inappropriate, and thirdly, it's not the right impairment. I mean, so um, by by the sense of uh, to not be a child, there's this idea of cooking must be done the right way, and if they're failing in that, then that's just a failure, regardless if you get the right end product, so to speak. Um, so I talk about in the book, I was about 11 when this happened so I am at I'm going to phrase it like this I'm at my most autistic in the kitchen it's sort of the most kind of obvious whenever Mm -hmm. I'm out and about people get really shocked really quickly when they realize when I'm in conversation Mm -hmm. so um it's things such as my oldest friend when she found out um she should have known I was on the spectrum because I actually met her through work experience she was my boss She's in her 60s, however, and doesn't read all the paperwork. So I've known her for nearly a decade now. Um, So I told her I was on the spectrum, and she got really shocked. So despite the fact that she'd seen such a form, and all the rest of it, because apparently I hide it well, I'm just masked, honey. Mm. I mean, Mm. really? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) it's the thing where, in the book, I describe how I was... I think I was baking. Um... And I had a mixing, I remember I had a mixing bowl in my left arm and whisking round. And it was because I basically, my body did not look fluent in the motions it was making. It looked kind of jaggedy, haphazard and all the rest of it. And that this was abruptly taken off me and I was not allowed to finish this off. And it kind of had semantics of like, you know, you're the worst person ever. Why didn't you learn, etc.? It wasn't up the wall. It wasn't exactly like I was stirring mm. and it had gone flicked yeah. upwards and it was still contained within said bowl. And I was using the correct technique in stirring and all the rest of it. So that's what I mean. That's just an example of infantilization of just because you do something differently does not mean it's inherently wrong. Yeah. I was re- I was so sat the I was so satisfied when it turned out on TikTok. Um after the book went viral, there was somebody else who put up a review where they're reading this passage and they just go, oh my God, I feel so seen. Like, that's, uh, those are the moments that I live for in the sense of, this was, yeah. just, this was basically me just wittering on during lockdown. <laughs> like, nobody's read it, nobody saw it, nobody knew what I was doing while I was sort of constructing mm. this because I was so bored mm. by reality TV. There was only yeah. so much of like, you know, <laughs> tell we, you only, uh, you know, kind of like made in Chelsea and all the rest of it. I can't mm. do that. I cannot, I have to be doing some sort of thing that's constructive. It was driving me mad. And I, that's how it came about in this sort of the space of the boredom of just the sheer and utter tedium of, oh, my God, there's a virus out there. Don't leave your house. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's great when you hear that people, <laughs> to get over the absolute hell that was that uh, situation, came out with some just incredible things. And I have to say, like, when um, it came out as well, I saw online just so many people talking about just, oh, my God, I'm so happy this book exists. And yeah feeling really validated and encouraged yeah it's definitely it was on on my radar and a lot of people saying nice things about it um so it sounds like it was something that was very very needed um 
which is fantastic and also you're so you're now adapting the book into a course is that right it's been adapted and it it starts on february 27th in east sussex The idea behind it was basically to kind of have a chain reaction to fill a generational gap. So it, the course says it's for parents, but it's also suitable for neurodiverse individuals, suitable for carers, teachers, guardians, you name it. Um, there are five sessions over the course of five weeks. The idea is to provide a mindfulness space. You learn how to make some recipes along with strategies and some useful information. Um so it's things such as rather than very often communication sets off kind of hostile circuits of arguments etc where very often it's an autistic person should not have to do all the communication work but very often it's set up that way so Mm. they may not necessarily be able to explain their needs if they do not have the terms, so if they do not know what interception is, if they do not know how to identify they are hungry, how can they tell you that their pissy mood, which you're now in a fight about, is for this reason and they need help? They can't Mm. do. So rather than just sort of going like, oh my God, you always do this and you're the worst person and blah, blah, blah. We need to change that. We need to change that unhelpful loop of thought. That's what, this will be aiming to do so i in the book i interviewed a wonderful individual his name's robin he runs the community chef community interest i can never remember the final c for a cic Mm. company Mm -hmm. um it's called community chef it's down in lewis east sussex and the idea is basically good food for all um we should all have a space to for this and I make this clear in the sense of we have, for the first time ever, we have the most amount of food banks historically. I'm ashamed mm. that we are in such a rich country where that has become so normalised. Added to that, it's also the thing of where if you have a disability, you're more likely to use one. That says so much about where we are. And the kind of ridiculous setup is sort of um, there's only one right way to live, one right way to earn money, etc. However, added to this, there's sort of an element of where there's skills that need to be taught or in terms of coping. And that's kind of why the book started, because so many individuals would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, yes, yeah, so I went to a mainstream school but they be, they would say stuff like, you're autistic, you don't need to know this. So it wasn't just things like sex education. Mm. They were like, you know, taken out of yeah. lessons where they would not learn the fundamental skills. Mm. So Robin actually taught me when I was at secondary school. He was a guest speaker. Um, this mm. book, and we reconnected basically because of a chance meeting over Zoom during the first lockdown. And I basically never left. Um. So I went to some of his courses basically for research for the book because there's a lot that I needed to learn how to do. So Mm -hmm. things such as even basic things like how do you cut an onion beats me, but I was taught how to do this um, and in a safe way as well. And in a way that also gets around, um, it's suspected I have dyspraxia. So it's things such as if I get too cold, for example, 
or if I'm overwhelmed, my hands don't work particularly well when it comes to fine motor skills like writing, chopping onions, that sort of thing. And he corrected this. So it was sort of I was learning as I was writing the book. Um, basically, over time, he had had a silly demand from silly demand, sorry, in popularity for a course for about neurodiversity and focused around neurodiversity. It was a thing that kept cropping up as he was working away. So published the book, occasionally saw each other about maybe a year has passed. So in around June or July last year, he WhatsApped me and he goes, I've got this idea and I really want to make this happen, he said. And it's the thing of where he has ideas, he's very good at them, but it's the thing of like, what madcap scheme have you thought of to go out and save the world type thing? <laughs> and so he goes, oh, I want to do something about neurodiversity and cooking. Come down to see me. So over however many months this was, um, we would have planning sessions and brainstorming. And to his credit, he sat there with the intent of understanding. And it was just a thing of he's always... He is also neurodivergent himself. He's dyslexic. Um, I'm a very wordy person. So it's the thing of where you get two neurodiverse people in place. Let's see what happens. Chaos, usually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the, co- the course is kind of a combination of his skills and my skills mm. as a way to kind of bridge a gap. We want to see a chain reaction happen in order to put these skills in place. So rather than just somebody going, oh, I wish I knew how to cook and doing it themselves, there is more of an impetus in place. There are five sessions, it's got really good food, and it's autistic-led. Who knew? It's a first of its kind. Um, And it just made me laugh. I was actually went to see him yesterday where he was talking to someone, and he explained it to me where he was sort of explaining the concept, and she'd apparently got really cross really quickly going, how can you do this without, like, you know, you've not got an autistic person on board. I have, he said. <laughs> I've got her. I do. <laughs> that's amazing. I think that sounds like just such a wonderful partnership of skills to create something that I, I like the way that you have uh, set it up to have, yeah, not just, oh, you're learning these fundamental skills, but actually, like, it sounds like shifting relationships and attitudes around that as well. So it, because I think that's one thing that I've heard about in other realms, um, actually just talking about confidence in the kitchen is saying that a lot of it is just the psychological expectations and I'm not going to be good at this and like, and making it fun and making it a positive experience. I feel like it's all, that's such a huge part of it. And actually then doing those, focusing on the individual challenges that people might have as well. Yeah, it just sounds amazing. Quite right too. I think it's the thing of where if in order to learn, sometimes it can't just be like, you know, sort of in the sense of dictation. There needs to be an element that is hands-on, lived experience, or maybe even just funny. It's I always tend to remember something where it's made me laugh or where it's actually... We can laugh, but we can also have a serious point underneath. Therefore, what do you learn from this? Um, he is one of the funniest people I know. And I'm 
very excited to start working on this from February 27th. We're hopeful that this would go further. So if anyone mm. has, like, you know, inquiries where they would like us to set this up or if they have any rich friends who could fund this further... <laughs> Get in touch. Yeah, I think that's really important. I'm really looking forward to seeing, uh, hearing more about it, um, how it goes. And yeah, hopefully it's a massive success, which I'm sure it will be, and that it will roll out. So yeah, people can get in touch <laughs> if they can support this further. Um, so I feel like we've been talking for a long time. I could honestly talk to you all day. I've got, I could have carried on with way more that's questions throughout this. <laughs> But um, let's not do that for everybody's uh, <laughs> time. For the sake and um, sanity of people listening to this, and also you have to edit this afterwards. <laughs> I, I do. I yeah, but it's always really enjoyable for me to listen back. So it's it's nice. Um, but yeah, I think I might be good to come to my final question. Um, and I ask all of my guests um, the same question, and that is: if you could change one thing to make the world a more neurodivergent friendly place for yourself, um, but also potentially this will help other people, uh, what would that be? I would get rid of strip lighting, and I would also implement this standard of listening with intent to individuals. Um, so strip lighting is, you know, when you go into a garden center and it's got the kind of the panels. With the lights on rather than yeah. just having a light so um there were i actually have two conditions that are impacted by this so first of all i'm autistic and those are the one sensory enemy shall we say mm. i just i can't <laughs> cope with them oh prior to catching covid i always just felt like really sick afterwards where I'd come out and sort of having to go to sleep if I had been in any kind of building that had them. I'm, and I also want to point out they're sort of been banned, but they're still in buildings, so therefore what's the point? I yeah. have a condition due to long COVID as to why I use the cane and all the rest of it. The strip lighting is used in basically every kind of organisational building. So if you go into the NHS, it's the sort of standard, the the sort of standard that they use, and it exacerbates my condition further. So when we talk about access to buildings and all the rest of it, that is the one thing that people never pay attention to. And I Mm. always point out, going, look at the lights, because it's not just me, it impacts, I can see the behaviors of other people it's basically um my brain so in terms of the circuit that they use it's where they're flicking on off on off however due to covid's wonderful majesty um it means now that my brain is detecting the on off element it's not just seeing it as a continual thing and mm. it just plays havoc. It's not just me. It's not just kind of like me wanting a sort of favorite thing. If you talk to a mm. neurodiverse individual at any given point, mm. it's very often something that I just realized I've just been fiddling with my hair. It's a stim. I'm so sorry. Um, if you talk to an individual person, uh, talk to a neurodivergent person, and very often it's the lighting that has an impact as well. Very often we pathologize behaviors and very often people are like, oh my God, why are they behaving like that? Um, 
when we think about sensory input, sensory triggers, and all the rest of it, lighting is always the one thing to check if it's mm-hmm. got the wrong kind of thing. If we had the intent yeah. of understanding people when talking to them, rather than just being entitled to their story, entitled to their time, we would be not in this mess for a start. We would have mm-hmm. made so much progress. And added to that, that's just being decent human beings. I didn't think there was like, you know, much to it. This this isn't exactly like a radical new thing, but it seems to be. Yeah. No, I think that is an exceptional one. And I feel like that's almost ending on hashtag don't be a dick. <laughs> Great way to end that. But yeah. That's such a, a brilliant title for a memoir. You've got it. it? Going, yeah. Yeah, don't be don't Damn. be a dick. The life and times of I am not that interesting now. Um, I would uh, disagree on that given the conversation we've just had. I would definitely read your memoir, um, especially if it's called Don't Be a Dick. (laughs) (laughs) I actually found a book that has that title by accident when I was at Falls Bookshop in London recently. And the thing that people don't quite understand is that... I sent this. I sent a picture to my boss going, I saw this and I thought you'd find this really funny. Um, the thing about books is that they are a concept. They're not just the case of sit down to write. So it's the thing of where mm. um, I'm going to put it like this. Sometimes I have a story that might be amusing to some, but it's not a concept that people would buy into because the, for a memoir, you're buying into a person effectively. Mm. Yeah. So rather than, it's the thing of where probably for many years I'm going to be talking on podcasts like this one and sort of be going, yeah, I did this stupid thing when I did that and you might find it amusing. Um, just sort of, it seems like um, I interviewed the cover star. I can't tell you who the cover star is because the issue mm-hmm. might not be in print at the time right. this goes out um mm. she is a wonderful woman she has been i'm going to give you some clues though she's a wonderful woman she's been on vogue in the bag she's a disability icon as a result of it she is sort of lauded and applauded for being eccentric and being really rude however she's far more profound than people realize and is very very thoughtful um so it's the thing of where afterwards she's been WhatsApping me, this person, and as soon as I told kind of like friends' family, they were like, oh, my God, tell me what she like. Just the person like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, enough so that my mother actually goes, but how are you so unfazed by all of this? When you can't see rank hierarchy or any kind of like social thing like that due to being autistic, it has perks, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I guess it really um, helps with not getting starstruck and things like that as well because you're like yeah she's I've only a person. Done that, I've only done that one uh mm. twice sorry so I did it when I met Brian May he was at uh he was at the Victorian Albert Museum and he was given a lecture because he had an exhibition to do with his photography work mm-hmm. um mm. I was really sick in the queue and sort of lost my voice so it's the thing of where I was trying to project myself and getting sort of overwhelmed really quickly the other one was when um, I don't want to name names, but this mm. was my now former mentor, a professor that I met at a party when mm. I didn't realise I was talking to his colleague, a colleague who he worked really closely with. Um, this is so embarrassing. Um, 
but it's funny, so it may as well tell us to sort of wrap the story up. Yeah. Um, podcast up, sorry. Um, I still came to his colleague, and it was the thing where I was, I think I was about 18 at the time, newly graduated and all the rest of it. So it's the thing where I stood there going, oh, my God, that's so-and-so. Um, not realising that they work together. <laughs> so she very simply, she very sweetly just very, she goes, would you like me to introduce you? To which, to which she said, okay. So she did. Um, so the poor man just had me sort of like word splurging mm-hmm. at him. Mm-hmm. To which he wonderfully said, okay, I'm going to go and get a drink now. He was, about a year later, he became a mentor type figure. He isn't anymore. Mm. That being said, he I went to his retirement party before that relationship kind of ended. And I was talking to, um, I think it was his wife, mm. who basically said, how do you know this person? And I told her the story that I've just told it to you. Hmm. And I and it's the thing of where after all this time I don't want to know if he still remembers because it was really embarrassing. Like I woke up the next morning sort of going, Oh my god, why did I do this? Um to which she made eye contact with me and she just very goes, Yeah, I bet he still does remember and he probably thought it was funny too. <laughs> It just sort of go, ah, floor, open up and swallow me up right now and never allow me to, like, you know, come out to play again. It was just like, oh, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That was brilliant. I don't know if he knows, but it's the thing. I remember, like, I even had, like, my really obnoxious Tumblr because they had waiters who had, like, you know, it's a black tie type thing. Mm. So they're coming around with like tumblers of it was a cocktail of something or other, and it just sort of everyone's like you know in suits and kind of all that thing, and everyone is at least thirty years older than I am. I was the youngest person there. It just oh. sort of like no, thank you, never again. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop oh, talking. No, that's great. That's a brilliant story to end on. So yeah, that's finish it there um but just want to say thank you so much for joining me today it was just an absolute thank you for having me it's just such a pleasure talking to you it's yeah as I said could have carried on talking all day but yeah that's brilliant have Uh, fun with the edit oh (laughs) I will um so make sure you follow Lydia on all her socials and um the links to these and um websites etc will all be um in the show notes so until next time goodbye Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow or subscribe. You can also find the show on Instagram at neurospicy.podcast.